Hello, you're listening to On Israel in uh, Al Monitor. I'm Ben Kaspit from Tel Aviv. Huge sighs of relief could be heard this week in at least two world capitals after the fragile coalition of Naftali Bennett and Yair Lapid pushed its budget through the Knesset, beating Benjamin Netanyahu's opposition hands down. This means that uh, barring the interference of a higher power, Netanyahu's ability to bring down the government has shrunk to a bare minimum. It also means that Lapid stands a very good chance of being sworn in as Israel's next prime minister in less than two years. The sense of uh, satisfaction in Jerusalem with the government's success in uh, clearing uh, the most significant obstacle to its survival was almost matched in Washington, where the threat of Benjamin Netanyahu's return is second only to the threat from Beijing. But what happens now on the axis between these two capitals? The threat to the budget approval weighed heavily on contacts between the sides since the new government took office in June, putting on hold many crucial decisions in order to avoid upsetting the government's hairbreadth Knesset majority, which could have uh, resulted in its collapse and new elections. You want to reopen the U.S. consulate in Jerusalem, the Israelis would uh, say to their American counterparts, wait till after the budget. You want us to limit construction in the settlements after the budget. You want us to make concessions to the Palestinians. You guessed it, wait till after the budget passes. Well, we are now after the, lay, uh, the fateful vote, but before a host of questions. What happens next? Where is the relationship between Bennett and Biden, Lapid and Blinken heading? Will the renewal of US negotiations with Iran test the limits of, the, of this friendship? Will the Biden administration ramp up pressure on Israel to negotiate with the Palestinians? Will Israel let Biden make good on his campaign promise to reopen U.S. consulate for the Palestinians in Jerusalem? And just who is the new American ambassador to Israel who was finally confirmed by the Senate last week? We will put all these questions to today's particularly distinguished guest, a gifted journalist, respected writer and analyst, an American Jew, one of the most knowledgeable experts on the peace process and U.S.-Israel relations. David Makovsky was the editor-in-chief of the Jerusalem Post and the diplomatic correspondent for Haaretz, covering the Israeli-Palestinian peace process for over a decade. These days, he is a senior fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy, the author of many publications and books, the latest co-written with Ambassador Dennis Ross. David Makovsky will be right here with us after this short break. Hi, I'm Elizabeth Hagedorn, and I'm the State Department correspondent at El Monitor. And I'm Joe Snell, I'm El Monitor's video editor. Let's admit it, this past year has been difficult to stay on top of the news and sift through what's accurate and what's misleading. Let Al Monitor help you. If you care about the Middle East and North Africa, you should consider listening to Al Monitor's audio series on the Middle East with Andrew Parasoliti and Amber and Zaman, and on Israel with Ben Caspi. You can now watch our newest video podcast, Reading the Middle East with Gilles Capel. You can subscribe to these series on your favorite podcast platforms. And through a host of free daily and weekly newsletters, we offer a range of perspectives with the highest journalistic standards. You can subscribe to these newsletters at almonitor.com. 
As an award-winning media service headquartered in Washington, D.C., Al Monitor has a network of over 160 contributors around the world. So if you haven't done so already, be sure to visit almonitor.com, where you can find all of these newsletters and podcasts, along with first-class reporting and analysis. Now I'm very happy to say hello and welcome my friend and colleague, uh, David Makovsky. Hi, David. How are you doing? Ben, good to be with you. Thank you. And let's start. Uh, you're familiar with the expression, after the holidays, in Hebrew, it's Acharei Chagim. Everything of any importance in Israel always put off until after the Jewish holidays in September, October. Now we are finally after the holidays. And more importantly, after the budget, do you see things changing between Washington and Jerusalem? Is the Biden administration expected to ramp up pressure on the Bennett-Lapid government now that their coalition is more stable? Can you give me an overview of the situation before we get down to specifics? Okay, I just say in the big picture is you have a situation that both the president and the prime minister Uh, have an understanding to try to uh, maintain a, a public sense of harmony and avoid kind of uh, washing dirty laundry in public. Uh, there's an understanding that this did not help either side during the last Democratic administration. And there's, uh, I think, a, a, a visceral sense of this president and of this prime minister that uh, if there's disagreements, keep it private. And I think that's been the approach. The, the US, this administration clearly is rooting for the success of this government, but it is gonna be a bit concerned that, um, that now that there is a budget, maybe that there's certain moves it could take that it couldn't take otherwise. Uh, we could talk about specifics. Yes, my, fir my first specific question exactly here is uh, uh, the Jerusalem consulate issue. Yeah. How important is it to the president, in your opinion, David Makovsky? How much longer can Israel keep putting off its decision or can we expect a, a compromise of uh, some sort? Let's say yeah. you're a Bennett or Lapid. How would you fix this mess? Look, it, it, you, you raise an important point. Uh, there's no doubt that there are people in this administration that keep saying to their Israeli counterparts in the Bennett government, the president campaigned on this issue. Um, the, the administration is what we call dug in. And the Israelis are dug in, saying the same things that they've been saying throughout, saying... This is a political wedge issue that would be used by uh, Netanyahu to come back to power. And if he comes back, uh, you'll get him, but you won't get the consulate. So this is kind of, in essence, the, been the, the dug-in positions. What I'm trying to find out is, is there a compromise? And, you know, dealing with Arab-Israeli negotiations, as long as I have, and Ben, you know this very well, yeah. you know, you're always looking for the interim agreement. Um, as they call in Hebrew, the Hezder Benayim. And could there be some move of the consulate, but it would be designed to be a first phase for something else? I don't know. Uh, right now, everyone's dug in. And um, I think the administration has been, on one hand, happy with the Bennett government, 
on all its economic measures towards the Palestinians. And that has been uh, a field, I think they feel it's a breath of fresh air compared to the past where everything was a quid pro quo. Uh, what do we and the Netanyahu get for this basic concession? And that is not the approach under Gantz uh, and Kogat, uh, the, what they call the Meta'im Pulot in Hebrew. Yes. So I think there's a new spirit that's good. I think what hurt it, frankly, uh, was the settlement move uh, announcements where- Yes, this is actually my, my, my next question. Uh, right. David, we're this, over the period. One second, one second. I want to separate it. So okay. you say you say in the in the consulate issue interim agreement, and I guess Bennett will will hope that the interim agreement uh, reminds us of uh, the Oslo agreements, so it will end up uh, the same way. But now uh, I did say I'm saying this just on my own. I'm not saying that. Of course, that's the view at all. I think if anything, both sides are dug in, and I think the pragmatism of the administration is let's not hold up one issue for all the other issues. It's interesting that both sides, Ben, are like using domestic politics and saying, you know, on the, on the American side, we campaigned on this issue. The president campaigned on this issue. On the Israeli side, it's Bibi will use the issue against us. So it's interesting how both look at the, at the political dynamics of this issue in, in domestic terms. What I'm wondering is whenever I see two parties uh, so dug in and they don't move, I wonder is could there be some sort of interim agreement of a temporary move, which, you know, maybe it would then, you know, as they plan logistics for somewhere in East Jerusalem or something like that. Um, I don't think they would consider Ramallah, but I, I wonder if this is a possibility right now. Uh, the administration is has been, you know, because of the budget and other things, it has been happy to make progress on economic issues. But, but like I said, they're disappointed very much on the, on the Bennett government on the settlements question. By the way, I, I heard exactly this idea, this uh, idea of an interim agreement or, or an, an embassy or a consulate in Ramallah that will have a branch in East Jerusalem from uh, guys in our side. Yeah. And and the, and it's fascinating and very interesting. That just like you said, that the both leaders are talking or committed to their base back home. Now, right. now exactly what you just said. The, the Palestinian greater issues. The administration was highly and publicly critical of Israel on yes. the Palestinian issue recently. I'm talking about the designation of six Palestinian groups as terrorist organizations by Defense Minister Gantz, and of course, the approval of thousands of new housing units for settlers in the West Bank. Can right. we expect additional clashes on these issues or is the worst behind us? Look, let's separate the issues. On the NGO issue, I think Israel sent someone over here to Washington mm -hmm. who really brought the goods, uh, the saying, hey, this is not people that are just holding hands around the campfire. Uh, this includes some very bad actors. I think, although the Israeli media hasn't picked up on it, I think the U.S. was notified, certain parts of the U.S. government, but parts of the U.S. government were not notified. And so I think there was a little, um, that, that created its, its own complexity. So I would put that issue aside. On okay. the settlements issue, I think the better government is playing with fire. I mean, the way it looked to me is someone who tries to always find the nexus point between policy and politics. 
is that 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 Bennett wants to tell people like Ayala Chaked and Zev Elkin and maybe Gidon Saar, I know it's important for you to tell your constituencies that that you could be have a right wing ideology and not be part of a BB government. Now it just so happened to come on the eve of the budget when he needs every vote. But I think here to the idea of settlements outside the fence, outside the barrier, I think it is viewed as as a, as a slap in the face. I mean, you know, this could be used by progressives in in the administration and outside it that says, Mr. Biden, we know you love Israel. We know you love Israel. You don't want any public disagreement with Israel, but look at what they're doing. So, I mean, the question is if settlement moves like this plays into the hands of critics who want to say, you're not getting enough, Mr. President, for being Mr. Nice Guy with the Israelis. And I think that's something that Israel needs to take into account. I must say, when I saw the number of 5149, I, I thought it was such a mathematical political number that I almost wondered. I don't want to um, suspect uh, the housing minister, Mr. Elkin, but is almost as if he wants to make a point. Uh, it, you know, it was just a little too convenient that the number was like this. Uh, some of these housing units were taken out in August uh, before the Bennett visit and now have been reinserted and even more. So, I mean, people know this here. They, there's, a, there's a whole group that follows it. I, I would say they follow it here closer than they follow it in Israel, often in the cabinet, from what I hear from certain cabinet ministers. So, but I think people should know there that these sorts of things are, are picked up on here very closely. And what do you say as a, as a follow-up question about the fact that right after approving, I know the number of uh, 3,200 units, right after approving the, the units for the Jewish settlers, the government was supposed to approve 1,200 units for Palestinians in Area C, uh, which is a gesture that they were waiting uh, long for, maybe in the idea of, uh, of uh, easing both sides or pleasing both sides. I think the principle is good that they did it, and that is something appreciated here. Although I'm, I'm waiting for some Mariv columnist <laughs> to do a, an investigation and say, of these 1,300 units, of which I think only 200 already finished the authorization, how many of them have already been built before? And this is post facto. I think the number might be very high. So I'm sure there'll be some Mariv columnists that will look so, into so, so the idea is good. Uh, on the ground, the situation is uh, something else. Yeah, but look, the thing is, is that Bennett came in, a, again, they overall, they think he's a pragmatist on a lot of issues. And they were hoping, I think, on the settlements issue, that he would look for the common denominator in his government, which might be and this is me talking, not that the, the administration approves the blocks, but if they would have gone into certain blocks, I don't think you would have had the same response. They are trying to avoid all public disagreements with Israel. So if, you know, the fact that as you picked up on a Ned Price did what he did at the State Department, which has been rare, and then Tony Blinken followed it up with a call to Benny Gantz, you know, that tells me that they want to make a point that you know, they've avoided making a point until now. So is this an aberration or is this the new normal? Uh, you have to tell me, but, um, you know, it's, it's, it's that, you know, that issue and the, and the consulate issue have been points of discord. Uh, but I think overall, 
there's a sense that there's a government that wants to work together. And I think they've been actually on the good side, pleasantly surprised on the economics with the Palestinians, that there's an approach of wanting to help on Iran, that they're trying to solve uh, behind We will reach doors. Iran shortly. Okay, sorry. As, sorry. as you yeah. imagine. You are, David, one of the most foremost experts in uh, on every aspect of Israeli-Palestinian negotiations in uh, recent decades. Maps, demographics, settlements, all the proposals made and buried, all the rounds of talks. Do you still see the two-state solution as a relevant prospect, given that Israel's coalition is paralyzed on these issues because its members have such clashing views while the administration is focused on China. Is there anything left to do right now? Well, there is a lot left to do. First of all, I've, I've had eight or nine conversations. I'm not saying anything uh, that, that the Naftali Bennett has not said publicly, where he said, look, let's start with areas A and B. We're not going to annex it, he told me. Uh, and let's improve uh, economically uh, the standard of living. Now, I know the Palestinians hear that and they hear economic peace and that they don't want that to be the end, but it's not the end, it's the beginning. And I think even with all the bad blood between the, the Emiratis and, and, and the Palestinians, I, I have reason to believe, I'm not just my own think tank theory, that uh, the Gulf would help out if it was a private sector initi initiative. I think when, when Bennett tells the New York Times, economy, 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 you know, I think if you focused on A plus B, he called it autonomy on steroids. He, he used that phrase with me and he's used the phrase publicly. I think this is an opportunity to start something. And just like uh, the work permits are good, this is this from Gaza, this is also would be something. So Look, I, you know, back to your, I'm not trying to duck your broader question about two states. It's clear that they cannot implement two states now on, on either side. The Venn diagram doesn't overlap on the decision makers and the public. It's clear, it's obvious. But the question is, do you shut the door for uh, generations? Um, what they call in Hebrew, Bechi Lidorot. This is the question. This is why I'm so focused about outside the barrier. It's clear it can't happen now. It's obvious. But the question is, do you want to make sure it can never happen? I think otherwise, if it keeps going like this, it'll be a slide to a one state. And I'm very worried that the one state is going to lose a lot of the support in the American Jewish community, for example. Uh, maybe not the Orthodox, maybe not the APAC supporters. But once you get beyond these groups, it's going to have a huge impact. As you know, Ben, you follow America very closely. I know there's some generational changes. And um, you also have people, even Jews, who outside the non-Orthodox define their Judaism as tikkun olam, uh, which means repairing the world. So if there is no chance for generations and you're shutting the door to that, even an option, it's going to lose people here. And we have to keep that in mind. No one wants Israel to take security risks that are reckless or anything like that. But the question is, do you leave the door open for at least a possibility in the future? And do you do what you can? Start with A plus B. 80, more than 80% of the West Bank Palestinians live in the A plus B areas. A means the, the urban areas. 
and B are the environs around the urban areas. There are things you can do to begin. And I think what's refreshing is that the Bennett government is coming at least with a no, more of an open mind on the economic issues. So I'm, I'm not uh, you know, so pessimistic, even if I think I'm realistic that there's no two states uh, tomorrow morning. You touched uh, right now a very sensitive and I think hugely important point uh, talking about uh, Israel and the, the American Jews. And of course, not talking about Orthodox will we, uh, always support Israel in any case. Do you think that this process that you just uh, touched briefly of a young generation getting uh, more far from Israel, not so close. Uh, you know, we hardly have a, a Holocaust survivors between us anymore. Do you see this process reversible? Uh, talking about Israel that is getting all the time more conservative, more religious, less liberal. You touch on a really big problem. I mean, I know Israel's making, you know, heroic efforts uh, and the diaspora is too with birthright you know, hundreds of thousands of young people visited uh, Jewish agency led by Natal Sharansky, Bougie Herzog. They've made huge efforts, but these countervailing efforts are strong too. The more foreign policy is reframed, let's say in America by certain segments as basically human rights. Uh, and uh, through that prism, the more people are gonna you know, ask questions. Now, Israel is going to, has answers that it's going to give, but there's no doubt that this generational shift, and you pointed out, the fewer people the whole, remember the Holocaust, the fewer people remember six, the 67 war. This has an impact. And, and the more that certain people define their Judaism as tikkun olam, I think it's, you take it all together and it's, it's, you know, it's, it's concerning. And look, Israel's got a great story with all it's doing in, in, in Africa and in other parts of the developing world and high tech, solar, all sorts of areas that are very exciting. And Israel's got now the Arab world opening up to it in, in the Gulf and parts of the Gulf, I should say. Also very exciting. It's not all negative at all, but this will have, I worry, an accumulative effect that we say in English is corrosive. And that's what I'm concerned about. So, you know, I think you've, you've got to be aware of that and take that into account. I want to repeat, nobody in America wants Israel to take a security risk that is, will put itself in danger. But I think between that and the status quo, there's a lot that could be done. And, but I just think the, the Israelis are sick of the Palestinian issue uh, and they don't want to hear about it anymore. But that just because they don't want to hear about it, it doesn't make it less important. That's, I guess, the point I'd like to make. And what happened the, during the Trump administration that we started to believe that not, not, Israel, not only Israelis are sick and tired of the Palestinian issue, but the rest of the world as well. And now reality changes and I share exactly uh, uh, what you just said and your feelings and talking about... Uh, By the way, we have a mutual admiration society because I read your columns and I always find myself nodding my head. I said, this is and, very sensible. And I, of course, follow uh, everything you do and, uh, and uh, really excited with it. And uh, talking about relationship in trouble, 
Let's talk about Israel's relationship with the Democratic Party. It's no secret that Netanyahu damaged Washington's bipartisan approach to Israel with his uh, complete identification with Trump and his address to Congress, uh, this famous address in 2015 against the wishes of the Obama administration. On the other hand, there is a progressive bloc in the party that uh, despises Israel, despises Israel, I'm sorry, uh, with or without Netanyahu. How committed is Biden to this bloc? To what extent can the Democrat support of Israel be restored to its level a decade ago? And what would you advise the Bennett Lapid government to do uh, for this to happen? That's a great question, a series of questions. Look, I think what's missing in, in the analysis in Israel is the different circles. I think there's a core group of, of a small minority led by let's say AOC and some others, who, uh, Ilhan Omar and some of them that fundamentally see Israel as an illegitimate state. And it's not about criticizing this policy here or there as uh, President Mubarak used to say, but it's about viewing it as a fundamental illegitimate state. It's very few people. It's nine people, let's say in the House of Representatives at most. Then there's a softer group where we see erosion and uh, so I don't think all the progressives are the same. I want to say that. But, you know, if you're a planner in Israel, you've got to think, OK, this is where the group is snapshot 2021. Now, where's that snapshot? Let's say 2028, two election cycles from now. You have to assume that that erosion could continue. It's, there's a soft left, so to speak. And then there's the centrist Democrats led by Biden himself. I put Tony Blinken, Jake Sullivan, key congressmen, senators, and I still think they carry the day. You know, Biden's commitment to Israel is 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 emotional. It's it's very goes very deep. He believes the world owes the Jews a state since the Holocaust. It's it's very deep with him. You know, he, I've heard him tell the story, I feel like, a hundred times about Golda Meir when yeah. he, uh, you know, there's no Israeli left who could talk about that. I spoke to Golda Meir. <laughs> Biden could do it, but no Israeli could do it. Yes. But, uh, you know, he tells the story of um, of uh, before the 73 war, I think it was his first trip abroad, and his wife was just killed and his son, and his son in, a, in a car crash. And uh, she kind of painted a very scary briefing that there could be a war. This is 1973 and there was a war. And, and he apparently asked her, so how do you sleep at night, Madam Prime Minister? And he tells the story. She said to him, Senator, we have a secret weapon. He said, can you tell me the secret weapon? He, she said, Senator, I'll tell you the secret weapon. And he goes, and it is? He goes, we have nowhere else to go, Senator. And he tells that story when I've heard him tell it. He, you see, he's internalized that story. So I think with him, it's it's very deep. And you know, and I think with one of the centrist Democrats, it's deep. And I would not write off all the progressive Democrats. But if if I was, uh, and don't forget that the the, the 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 progressive caucus among the Democrats is like a hundred out of two hundred and twenty plus members. It's it's big. almost a half. Yeah, but that, that is not told in Israel often. But within that hundred, there's different circles. There's some who are like what we would say in English, beyond the pale, I think, uh, who just think Israel is illegitimate. But I just think you've got to think forward and say, okay, five years of status quo, seven years, the two more cycles of presidential elections. Is it only going to be this number? 
you've got to think about erosion. And I think that's something where Israel needs to focus. And, and somehow this needs to be part of the debate, you know, when, you know, people keep saying they want to expand beyond the fence. Yes. Oh, well, we finally reached uh, the most, I think, existential uh, question, uh, the ticking bomb, what we call Iran. Israel's position uh, rejecting the return to the original version of the nuclear deal is well known. Unlike Netanyahu, Bennett has uh, not declared war on the democratic administration, but he has been strongly urging uh, it to put a military option on the table should diplomacy fail, in other words, to get serious and act like a global power. The Americans, how should I put it, are not uh, too keen. How do you see this playing out? No, it's a great question. I mean, look, Israel, you know, Bennett famously came here in August and said, plan B, plan B, plan B. You have to believe that the Pentagon has got a lot of plan Bs. The question is, does plan B ever become plan A? <laughs> um, or do you wait for Vienna indefinitely? Is, is Iran saying they're going back to the table? But they're only announcing it because there's about to be a board of governors meeting of the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, and they want to check, check a box or avoid the sanctions of the Security Council. So is it just a tactic or is it, is it a strategy? Some say, oh, no, Iran will cave in. There's been 100 percent inflation, unrest in 41 cities. We don't know. But I will say one thing. What is concerning me as an American and talking to Gulf diplomats? and I'm going to the Persian Gulf now, is I'm concerned that Iran doesn't fear America. They don't fear that if they hit um, you know, near American troops in Syria, that there could be a retaliation. They don't fear that they can uh, enrich at 60% uranium and there's a response. They don't fear that there could be uranium metal uh, being formed, uh, you know, this, these are thresholds and Iran needs to know there's a price. And I'm not here advocating wars. I'm advocating a, a strong signal to Iran that they understand that every move they take, there's a counter move by the United States. And that I think Biden has been so focused domestically on getting his budget passed uh, and the like. It's interesting, both countries are in a budget cycle, but I, I'm, I'm concerned that Iran is getting the wrong message and they have to fear the stick, you know, uh, and not just wait for more carrots. So, not, not only talk softly, but also yeah, exactly. hold the stick. And you know, exactly. it reminds me the first, I, I, I'm sure you remember it as well, the first uh, meeting and conversation between President Clinton and young, very young uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu, when after the, the, the meeting, uh, the president asked his staff, who is the, the president of the superpower between bo both of us? It's uh, what, what drives most of Israel is uh, crazy from left and right is that the United States is not acting like a superpower. You don't have to bomb or invade anyone. You just have to, to let them understand and know that they are dealing here with a global power that will, will uh, is able to, to, to retaliate ex exactly like you said. And, and uh, we do, you don't see the Americans understand it. Well, I think it's starting. It's just beginning. I mean, you, you have a situation now there, there was it the B-1, uh, the bombers are now yes. flying 
with escorts. Escorted, escorted by Israeli yeah. Air Force. Yes. That's a new change in the last week. You you had Lapid was in Bahrain and he was standing next to a Navy, a U.S. Navy ship. Now, yeah. That might sound like a technicality or a tourist thing. It wasn't. Uh, the Emirates um, the Air Commander uh, came to Israel for a multilateral uh, uh, military exercise, and there were other countries. It's fair to say, I would think, that these countries checked with the U.S. before they did it. Um, I think we might be seeing the last couple weeks a lot of these moves that are, are beginning to happen. I don't want to overstate it because I think your critique and my critique is the same, but I think that there's gonna be more signaling uh, in the future. Um, I, I could just say Dennis Ross, uh, my colleague who you know, we wrote a book with and our book came out now in Hebrew, but Chazak uh, V'Amatz, about four leaders, both in Hebrew and in English, um, you know, be strong and of good courage. But he served in the Obama administration and, and he did see that every time there was a signaling by the US that maybe the public missed it, but the Iranians did not miss it. So I hope there's gonna be more signaling uh, going on in uh, by the Biden administration because, you know, they have to fear America. This doesn't mean a war, the opposite. I think if you want to stop exactly. a war, you need deterrence. So I, want, I don't want any of the listeners to think I'm urging for a war. I'm just saying, if you want to avoid war, then you have to signal a, a sense of deterrence that the Iranians will, will, will receive. I totally agree. And my final question is, what can you tell us about Tom Menides, the new American ambassador uh, to Israel, whose appointment was confirmed a few days ago? Yeah, look, I think Tom is going to do a great job. Uh, I could see him and Bennett really hitting it off. He's a new type of uh, ambassador that we haven't seen before in that in it, uh, who's gone to Israel. Usually the person who goes to Israel is either a foreign uh, policy person uh, from a think tank or something like that, uh, or a foreign, you know, a foreign service officer, as we say, FSO. Uh, uh, you know, an American official diplomat. He is more coming from the world of uh, politics in, in the democratic circles. He's been a leading fundraiser. His, uh, I think his, I don't know if it's been reported, but I think his, uh, one of his kids went to the same private school as Biden's grandchildren. Um, he is very plugged in with this White House. He knows the president personally. So this is, um, and he's raised a lot of money. He was Joe Lieberman's uh, campaign director when Joe ran for uh, vice president with Gore. This in is good news. He, he lives the world of democratic politics. So I have a feeling for the Israeli media, it's going to be a festival because my guess is that he's very accessible and uh, he's very easy to talk to. And my guess is, given the fact that he has this Biden connection and, you know, he's got Biden's cell phone number. And what we hear is that Biden like put up his phone and told them, you know, he he's told his ambassadors, you have a problem. Here's my number. Call me directly. Um, so I think he'll have that access. And I have a feeling that he's going to uh, be my guess is he'll have a very close relationship with Bennett and Lapid. 
extremely close. On the policy side, he's smart, and I think he'll be a quick study. Um, and uh, he's uh, he's told Dennis and me, I've read your book already twice. <laughs> so that was nice to hear. But um, tell him to read mine really as well. Succeed. He's 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 he he very much wants to succeed. This was really exciting. David Mikovsky, I, I don't know how to, to thank you for being here with us in On Israel and Al Monitor. Thank you very much. Take care and you take a trip to the Gulf. So uh, try to have some fun. David. Thank you. Anytime, Ben. It's always a delight to talk to you and I hope you keep, keep writing. Thank you very much. We'll take a very short break and be back right uh, after you. Thanks. Hello, I'm uh, Gilles Kepel, professor at uh, Sciences Po and uh, Normal Sup in Paris and author of a number of uh, books and articles on the Middle East. Through my new podcast, Reading the Middle East on the award-winning media service and monitor, we will take a deep dive into the trends in the region with the authors and thought leaders who are shaping how we think about the Middle East. Reading the Middle East will be a fantastic addition to Al Monitor's outstanding podcast lineup, including including On the Middle East with Andrew Paraziliti and Amber Inzaman, and On Israel with Ben Kaspit. You can subscribe on your favorite listening platforms. We look forward to your joining our conversation. Thank you for staying with us. A few headlines from this uh, uh, ultra-interesting conversation with Ambassador, not Ambassador, with uh, Professor David Makovsky, talking about the uh, 3,200 uh, housing units that were just approved by the Bennett-Lapid uh, government in the West Bank. Makovsky said uh, this is actually uh, playing with fire by this government, especially uh, those units that are outside defense, the security fence, uh, areas that uh, actually they block or they, they interrupt the, the, the option of the two-state solution. Makovsky says, uh, yes, there is no uh, negotiation right now, uh, no partner maybe, but you cannot ruin or, or, uh, or block the, the future uh, uh, idea of the two-state solution. And, and this uh, actually is, is like a slap on the face of the administration and playing to the hands of the many critiques that Israel has, uh, especially within the Democratic uh, Party. When I told him the, that Israel on the, a few days later approved the 1,200 units for Palestinians in Area C, uh, he said it's, uh, it's a very good idea. But uh, a few of these units were already approved and uh, that Israel has to remember that uh, Area C is crucial and uh, the, the option to the two-state solution must uh, left wide open. Touching the, the ticking bomb of the Iranian issue, uh, David Makovsky said that uh, he feels that in the administration people are starting to understand what Israel is talking when, uh, when it says that uh, the, the Iranians, like Makovsky said, has to fear America if uh, they want to bring them back 
to a real negotiation a table. They must fear America. And, and, and he mentioned the, the B-2 bomber that ju just a few days ago crossed the Israeli skies towards the Gulf and was escorted by uh, Israeli F-15s. His first, maybe first sign that shows the Americans are starting to understand the way they should uh, uh, deal with Iran. Uh, Makovsky emphasized that he is not preaching uh, to a war. On the contrary, if you want uh, uh, not to have war, you have to, uh, to have at least deterrence. And right now, there is no American deterrence uh, in the Iranian side, and it has to be dealt. In the conversation, uh, Makovsky shared my and uh, many Israelis' uh, deep concern about uh, the gap that is getting wider and wider all the time between the, the new generation within the American Jewry and Israel. He said that uh, it can be dealt and uh, it's possible to, to try and close this gap, but the situation is, uh, right now is, uh, is worrisome. I hope you found uh, this conversation interesting and I hope to found, find you here next week in uh, On Israel in Al Monitor. I'm Ben Kaspit from Tel Aviv. Thank you and take care.